Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Could you just do a big, heavy sigh right at the beginning? (laughs) And here we are. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. It has been an intense week that culminated two really intense years of political campaigns. And we thought to help put things into perspective for us, we would talk to a woman who has accomplished a number of firsts in her own political career. We're talking this week with Carol Mosley Braun. Carol Mosley Braun was the first African-American woman elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992. After that, she served as the American ambassador to New Zealand, a pretty sweet gig. (laughs) And in 2004, she ran for the Democratic nomination for president, but dropped out in the primaries. With decades of experience in American politics as a woman, we figured she might have some perspective on this week. So let's get right to it. Ambassador Braun, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Greta. It's my pleasure, my honor to be here with you. So we're a couple days out from the election now. We're sitting at a studio here at WBEZ in Chicago. I wonder what election night was like for you. Where were you? Well, I was at home. I stayed up as late as I could. I woke up the next morning, as a friend of mine said, in mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. So um, it was pretty traumatic for me. Um, And at the outset, I want to thank Hillary Clinton for giving it her all. She really worked hard. She was trying to break that final glass ceiling in politics, at least, for women. It wasn't her falling short, but our system didn't allow it to happen. And there's a reason for saying that, because she, as you know, she won the popular vote. She just did not win the Electoral College, which is one of the many checks and balances that the framers of the Constitution put in place. And it has historically served to deny the popular will on more than one occasion, This was the most recent, but it happened with Al Gore, who also won the popular vote. The really important one for historical one is, frankly, the Hayes-Tillman election after the Civil War, 1876. That one was was really, really important. I think it's such a good reminder because a lot of us have in our personal history of politics, the memory of 2000, but to recognize that those aren't the only two times this has happened in the context of, of the other times before the dissidence between the popular vote and the Electoral College. But what else are you feeling like are the takeaways for you having watched this campaign? And But what is this last year and a half, you know, almost two years feel like now that it's over, at least this phase of it? Well, I'm a recovering politician on my sixth step, right? <laughs> so the last year and a half has been torment for me. People messing with my recovery <laughs> because, because every other time you turn around. I mean, there was so much passion in this election from so many different places. And everybody had a strong opinion, which I guess is now being verified by the polling results. They're saying people had their minds made up by September. That does not surprise me at all. 
I was telling friends of mine in the Clinton campaign, in the Democratic Party, I wouldn't be so sanguine about this election. There's a quiet vote out there. There are voters you're not hearing from. Uh, This could go another way and could go horribly wrong from the perspective of a Democrat. So true enough, here we are after the election and uh, those predictions. I'm not patting myself on the back because it was not a happy outcome from my perspective. I am brokenhearted. I am brokenhearted. I mean, I know Hillary Clinton would have been a fabulous president. She not only because of her credentials and her qualifications, but her heart's in the right place. So for me, it's devastating on so many different levels, both personally and politically and even as an American citizen. Having said that, however, I think it's really important that people recognize that in this country, we have to have a peaceful transition of power. We have to come together. We have to work together. We have to give this president a chance. There were people who felt as strongly when Barack Obama got elected. And we were angry at, at least I was upset with them, that they wouldn't come along and support the president, the duly elected president. And that's who Donald Trump will be, is the president of all of us. And so we really have to hold him accountable, hold his feet to the fire, but at the same time be prepared to give him a shot, give him a chance to govern. And because government and politics are two different things. We definitely want to talk with you more about the election. But as we have you here, you do say that you are a recovering politician. Yes. But I mean, you yourself have broken so many glass ceilings that I thought it would be really fun to talk to you about your own career as well. You did so much. Well, thank you. So thank you very much. It's called fear is a great motivator. (laughs) Fear. Yeah. What do you mean by that? (laughs) It means you just keep running. You keep moving forward. You have to make a decision about to go left, go right, go forward or not do anything at all. And, you know, it's not a matter of setting out with a plan. I never knew that I was going to be breaking glass ceilings before the term glass ceiling was coined. But, you know, I didn't know that was what was going to be the case in my life. Uh, Looking back, that's exactly what happened. When I first became assistant U.S. attorney, my dad referred to me as a paper pusher for the government. <laughs> so, thanks, Dad. <laughs> thanks, Dad. Right. I, you know, I'm breaking a ceiling, right? There yeah. had not been. There, at that point, there had only been one African-American woman in the U.S. attorney's office ever. Wow. Wow. Ever. And so my dad said, no, paper pusher for the government. This was after, by the way, he had talked me out of becoming an art historian, which was what I really had wanted oh, to do. Wow. Um, and, and, so make uh, up your mind, Dad. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like, do? OK, fine. You don't want me to do art history. So I'm over here now. So then the next step was when I ran for the state legislature, they called it the year of the woman. More women mm-hmm. were elected that year than ever before to the Illinois House and the Illinois Senate. I went in with a class of seven women. This was like earth shattering. You would have thought you would have thought the heavens had opened up and just <laughs> dropped whatever on, on the entire chamber. And then when I ran for recorder of deeds of Cook County, there had never been a woman elected countywide at that point. I ran with Ari Puchinski. We were like, we used to joke we were the Bobsy twins, right? (laughs) Uh, And so we both ran um, and both got elected. And then from there, what happened was um, Clarence Thomas got nominated to the Supreme Court and our senator was voting for that. And so it was from that that I was able to get 
to the United States Senate. And 92 was another big year for women in the U.S. Senate, right? That's correct. That was another year of the woman. And that was my second year of the woman, right? (laughs) Let's just have all the years. Yeah, more years of women (laughs) is what we need, I think. And then, uh, interestingly, I lost my re-election. I went off to New Zealand to become ambassador to paradise. Yeah, man, that sounds like a pretty sweet It was magnificent. (laughs) It was magnificent. It was really like a big hug. It was like a cosmic Mm. hug after having gotten my face kicked out here at home. (laughs) And what did it feel like to to get that perspective of seeing what the American system looked like from people living outside of it, who were probably keeping tabs on it in some ways closer than a lot of Americans do. And absolutely, and particularly since New Zealand, the people in New Zealand are so highly educated. And in New Zealand, the respect and regard for the United States was very high, which made my job very easy. Uh, frankly, that's what ambassadors do. They go around and make people like America. It's like, how hard can that be? <laughs> so so, so they, they were, and in fact, if anything, they were at the time, it's changed a little bit since then, but at the time they were to the left of the United States. And so they saw our politics as being right wing. That's again, that's changed a little bit. But at the time, Mm -hmm. so you can imagine here I come, this African-American woman. It was not a big surprise. I mean, I was welcomed with open arms. I hired the first Maori, the first indigenous person to work for our embassy. And so it was it was just a brilliant time in my life. And, And then I came back home. And in one of those trips, my little niece, who at the time was 11, she was doing her social studies homework and she said to me, Auntie Carol, all the presidents are boys. You know, you open up her book. She had pictures of all the presidents, and they were all boys. And I said, oh, Claire, girls can be president, too. I was so shaken because I realized I just lied to her. And so my brother said to me, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, you know what? I'm going to run for president. That's that's my response. So that's, again, back to your question. I didn't know I was going to take these steps. They just came. They, they were natural extensions of, of who I am, and I just followed one step in front of the other. What did your niece think about that when you told her you were running? She was delighted. She was delighted. She, Auntie Carol's going to be president. Well, not exactly. <laughs> but showing her that you can run. Yes. That you can take a chance. Yes. Maybe she can run for president one of these that's days. My th- and that's what I told <laughs> some of my friends. Is, you know, everybody's commiserating about what happened with the election. And I said, you know, you know failure is impossible. We will get a woman president here in the United States. This is, again, the greatest, most powerful country in the world. There is no reason why we have not had a woman president. We will one day get it. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. 
More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Cool. So, Trisha, there were a lot of different reasons that we were looking forward to talking with Ambassador Braun today. And one of them actually is something that we have known about her for quite some time, Trisha, because of an article that you found involving the pantsuit. Do you care to explain? The early days of the pantsuit revolution, yes. <laughs> so, turns out it was 1993. 1993. Okay. And what it was still considered against Senate rules. For a woman to wear pants on the Senate floor. Oh, good. So I guess that means blazers with skirts kind of suits. suits. Because they had to be very dressed up, obviously. There's a dress code in the Senate. Right. But in 93, women still weren't allowed to wear pants. Well, nobody told Carol Mosley Braun. Yes. (laughs) And she had a thing or two to say about this dress code. I got to tell you, again, back to the story of serendipity and coincidence in my life. This is another serendipity story. I had a really nice, I won't name the brand, but a really nice (laughs) pantsuit. I was going to wear it to work. And it's like, well, why shouldn't I wear this? And to be clear, this was at a time where it was actually against Senate rules for women to wear pants. It was never written down. It was never written down. No, it was one of those unwritten rules that they don't tell you about unless you're part of the circle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And nobody was talking to me about these things. Mm -hmm. So I had no clue. Oh, so you just didn't know. I just didn't know anything. You just really wanted to wear your awesome I was wearing my nice outfit, I thought. (laughs) And I walked onto the floor of the Senate and, you know, the gasps were audible. Wow. And I, but again, it's like, okay, so what's up? What's the problem? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not like I have on a kilt. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? (laughs) Right. So you accidentally kind of protested the pants rule you didn't know existed. I didn't know it existed. And then what happens next? And what happened next was that other people started wearing pants. All the women staffers went to their bosses and said, you know, if the senator can wear pants, then why can't I? (laughs) And so they everybody started. It was the pantsuit revolution that happened overnight. So everybody started wearing what they wanted to wear. That's so great. If I was a female staffer. On the Hill, I can just imagine how annoying it would have been. It's the 90s, for Pete's sake, to be told that it's not okay to wear pants to work. What if just, I, as someone who much prefers to wear pants to any other form of garment, I'm grateful to you for breaking the unwritten rule You're about very welcome. pants and professional You can wear settings. pants when you get elected to the Senate. You can wear pants on the floor. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> no I mean, worries. I, think I will. To be clear, it's worth emphasizing that this was less than 25 years ago. That's right. You know, I mean, That's when right. you think about the progress women have made... Even the fact that you couldn't wear pants on the Senate floor within our lifetimes. Okay, let me take you back. Again, this is the historian. This is the nerdette in yeah, me coming yeah, out. Okay? Yeah, yeah, bring it. Uh, uh, when you consider we are still carrying Eve's burden, I mean, from Eve to Salome. Oh, you're really going back in that, No, seriously. That's what Hillary Clinton ran into. Yeah. When you talk about misogyny, in the 15th century, women who talk too much or who were considered as being shrewish because they spoke their mind, they would put a weight on their tongue and make them walk around the square. That was the punishment. Oh, in St. Paul, of course, women should not be heard in the churches. So it's, it's scripture as well. Salem witches. Not to mention the Salem witch trials. So we are overcoming centuries of discrimination, of sexism, misogyny, of being considered to be the lesser, because of gender. And that's not something you overcome overnight. 
And so as I told my friends this morning, we were texting about the election, and I said, you know, failure really is impossible. Susan B. Anthony was right. Dr. King once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And women having equality is a matter of justice. It's fundamental freedoms. You know, it's, it's, it's so basic that, and it seems obvious to us, but when you consider for a moment that a lot of women didn't support Hillary Clinton, gender notwithstanding, they didn't think gender was that big of a deal. Again, it's, it's got a long, long history that we are going to have to continue to press forward to change, and that change is not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be like the pantsuit episode where all of a sudden the heavens open and everybody can, you know, be equal. As someone who's run into glass ceilings and who has bumped her head against them, what do you think we can do to move forward? I think the answer is right in front of us. I think it is happening as we sit here and speak. Young women are not going to be relegated to the sidelines, even if they decide they want to be they want to wear 16-inch high heels and tight skirts. They're not going to be relegated to a position where they can't speak their minds, where they can't participate in society as equal citizens. They're not going to put up with it. And it's a matter of expectations changing, and those expectations have changed. So when you have a woman run as the nominee of, the, of one of the two major parties for president and to win the popular vote, as Hillary Clinton did, to my niece and all of her generation, women running for office is going to be natural. Why wouldn't they? And so, uh, you know, even looking at today, I t- t- talking with somebody else about the, the reports on the business leaders, the Fortune 500 companies that are now being led by female CEOs. You know, if you've got the brains and you've got the capacity and the ability to do something, why would the society not let you do it? Why would you sit on half of your talent? Why would you basically burden yourself with giving you half of your population in a global competition. And and that's the question going forward, because I think that, again, I think expectations have changed. Women have changed in the sense that whether they consider themselves to be feminists or not, and I'm ha- proud to say I'm a hardcore feminist myself, <laughs> but whether they consider themselves to be a feminist or not are just not going to take being relegated to less. I think, too, that there's so many things that people are feeling either angry or anxious about from this election cycle, whether it's the Electoral College or whether it's the way we nominate people to either party's process, whether it's, you know, open primaries versus closed primaries, whether it's superdelegates, all these things that sort of bubbled up. And during the nomination process and the primaries, people were talking a lot about and now it seems like those have fallen away from the conversation. But the time to do something about any one of those things is now, right? That's correct. How do we how do we keep people thinking about the process after the election? I think the most important conversation has to do with respect and how we treat one another because all of these systems, all these institutions, all these structures grow out of civil society and kind of the the where everybody is intellectually, how we regard one another. And if we're coming out of a place of anger and the institutions are rigged and and I can't I hate that person over there, 
If we're coming out of that place, then you get one set of structures. If you're coming out of a place that says, oh, look, we're all in this together and we really do have to work through these problems because it's going to take the best that we have to give to get these things, these problems solved, then that's going to give us a different set of structures. And so I think that that's kind of where we are right now. And so the important things that you guys can do, because you communicate with a lot of people, is to start that conversation. You know, the conversation about respect and regard for one another and respect for our institutions and civility. You know, civil society is called that for a reason. And so if we start there, then that will give us a processes that will help to produce an equitable, an improved democracy, if you will, an a perfected democracy. We don't really have a straight democracy, and that's where the Electoral College comes in. What we have is a republic. And and I actually spoke in a school, and I've ordered a bunch of constitutions for the children. <laughs> so, you know, read it. Tell people to read the Constitution. Everybody talks about it, but it's kind of like the Bible. People talk about <laughs> having the Bible all the time. How many people do you know have actually read it? Seriously. Who's not a preacher. Right. So the point is, you know, read our Constitution. Obviously, it's changed over time. But if you read it, what it will do is inspire your examination of what some of the changes are. And those speak to who we are as Americans as well. I mean, when the Constitution was written, women couldn't vote, as you well know. Black people were slaves, in the largely, not entirely, but because there were some free blacks. But the fact of the matter is, and even white males who didn't own property couldn't vote. So the franchise has expanded over time to bring in younger people, to bring in women, to bring in African-Americans, to bring in Native Americans. So it's expanded over time and changed, but it comes out of the popular will and out of a climate of opinion. And that's, again, why you are so important, because you help to set the conversation. And if the, if the climate of opinion is one that says we want to have reform, we want to have institutions that actually reflect our population so that ordinary citizens are heard, and have and feel like they're part of this and not alienated from it, if that's the conversation, then I think we're in better shape than we may think today. I think, too, there's a really important conversation to be had around expectations and women. You know, I think about Hillary's concession speech, talking about the idea of successes and setbacks. Yes. And I think we're so afraid of admitting when we're wrong. I think there's such a huge priority put on women to be perfect and, you know, one thing we did actually on our show just last week was encourage a conversation around bravery as opposed to perfection. Right. You know, and even if that means you tried a thing and you totally messed it up, like you still tried the thing. That's and that's right. what's actually important about that. You know, that's exactly right. Courage and, you know, making the step, taking the risk, putting yourself out there is what, again, particularly in politics, that's what it requires whether you succeed or not is less important than whether or not you tried. And so, again, I started off this conversation thanking Hillary Clinton, and I meant that sincerely because I've run for office. I can tell you how grueling it is, and nobody gives you credit for the fact that it takes you 30 more minutes to put your face on. <laughs> Seriously, you get no credit for makeup or, or having to wear stockings <laughs> and heels, you know. I, I, it's funny because during my Senate campaign, I'll never forget as long as I live, my campaign manager, I was about to go out on stage for a debate, and my manager came over and made a comment about how my nail polish was chipped. Oh. It's like, what? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> of all the things. 
of all the things. This is what we're worried about right now. <laughs> and yep. Seriously. And to this day, there's a important fashion magazine that slammed Hillary Clinton in her race against when she was running against Barack Obama in the cycle before, slammed her for, quote, not having a sense of fashion. Oof. It's like, when have you asked? A, a, what even is that? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> and why is that a point <laughs> you know, for, for not endorsing this woman candidate? I mean, seriously. Do you ever miss politics? Well, you just you just mess with my recovery. I have to tell you. <laughs> Do I miss it? In the sense that I have a different perspective on it now. Do I miss getting out there and campaigning? Well, not a whole lot. The fundraising sucked. I mean, it, seriously, <laughs> the fundraising was just awful. Some people like it, but I didn't. Um, just a lot of bad dinners and ugly ballrooms. Oh, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> But so do I miss that part? No, not particularly. Do I miss governing? I miss being in the in in the Senate. I do. I mean, I enjoyed being part of the legislative process because you can talk about ideas and you can be sometimes you're successful in bringing people around to your perspective. And while you asked, did I miss politics? While I, on the one hand, I kind of do. I am encouraged and happy to pass the baton along to young people such as yourselves and my niece, Claire, and my son, Matt, because really that is the human condition. We are only here for a short period of time. And all we can do is the best we can do in the time that we're allotted. And none of us knows what that is. So all you can do is the best that you can do while you're here. And then you've got to be prepared to pass the baton along to the next group. Listen as your day unfolds. Challenge what the future holds. Try and keep your head In a minute, some important homework from Carol Mosley Braun. You gotta be, you gotta be bad, you gotta be bold, you gotta be wiser. You gotta be hard, you gotta be tough, you gotta be stronger. You gotta be cool, you gotta be calm, you gotta stay together. All right. What do you got? I think I'm going to come back to the Constitution. I'm going to ask people to get a copy of the Constitution, to find a copy of it, which it's on the Internet even, and read it. Read what the structures are. The importance of participating in politics is so that your voice is heard in terms of who gets to make the decisions about governing. But really, the governing is what all this is about. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to get them confused. And I think that that is one of the problems that we have to overcome for people to understand that what we have is a very, very rare and precious jewel in terms of our governmental structures, the way our system is set up. That is the envy of the rest of the world. And we really should pay attention to it. A, unless you know what it is, you can't talk about it. You can't criticize it. It's like the line about people who don't vote. If you don't vote and you don't participate, you've got nothing to say to anybody about any of this because you have failed yourself and the rest of the community, indeed the rest of the world, given how powerful the United States is. So, you know, find out about government, read the Constitution. There'll be some parts that will see a little bizarre. It's like reading the Bible, okay? Seriously, there's some parts of it that you go, huh? Okay. But once you've done that, then, you ha- then you're in a better position to actually have a conversation about what it is that we're doing with our politics and, and going forward. 
Ambassador, thank you so much for coming on Nerdette. This was really a pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. Before we go, I want to take a second and have us think a little bit more about the idea of bravery, about being brave instead of perfect, about taking risks, about speaking up for yourself, about doing things that are a little bit scary or maybe a lot scary. Or just uncomfortable. Right. Ways that you're brave day to day, big and small. We asked you to share some of those with us last week, and we got some really lovely comments from listeners on Twitter and on Facebook. One Facebook message in particular really got to my core because it was someone talking about having lost a parent and taking the brave step of reaching out to a friend of that parent for the first time since losing them and rekindling a relationship with someone who was going to bring back a lot of emotions and memories for them. So that person was gracious enough to share their moment of bravery with all of us, and we would love it if you would do the same. What are the ways this week that you were brave? Let us know. You can send us an email. We're at nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. We are also just at nerdatpodcast on Instagram, and you can find us on Facebook, all the good stuff. Let us know how you have been or plan to be brave. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dassault and Justin Bull. Our intern is Annie Newman. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. Subscribe to us on iTunes or you can follow us on NPR One. Thank you for listening to us however you're listening to us. And thanks to Go Big Obo for the very nice iTunes review. This is one of my favorite little weird names because backwards it's Obagabog. Obagabig. Obagabog. <laughs> As we mentioned, you can find us on Twitter, at Nerdette Podcast, Instagram, Facebook, all those things. We also have a weekly email newsletter. You can find that by going to nerdettepodcast.com. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where there are delightful podcasts for nerds of all stripes. Find out more at wbez.org. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework! Really, do your homework. America needs you. Mana, mana! Mana, mana! Boop! Whoa. <laughs> I think that's it. We're all going to be okay. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.